Hey guys, how's it going? James Hughes here, co-host, producer of the Grinding for Greatness podcast. We have a fantastic episode coming up for you. I interview Michael Seeley. We'll go into a little more detail of what to expect from this podcast, but we have a, an amazing episode um, coming up for you guys. I know he's full of information. He's full of everything that we need to hear to avoid burnout, everything that we need to hear to take a, a, a leap of faith in ourselves, You know, whether you're just going from one situation and you're trying to find that courage to start betting on yourself and start working for yourself or you know maybe you're already there and you're starting to hit that that first ceiling and you're starting to get a little taste of what that burnout can be michael seeley he's the man that can help you through all of that we have that interview coming up john in the field you know how he does going a thousand miles per hour making sure we have all the businesses running the way that they should making sure that everywhere that he's put his time and in invested and making sure that that is coming out as polished as it should be so you have me here this afternoon running through this interview without further ado we'll go ahead and jump right into it all right guys with us we have michael seeley championed competitive cyclist as well as a licensed psychotherapist and mental performance coach michael thank you for being with us how's it going james happy to be here i know one thing that i was doing um when i was looking for guests on this podcast you know we have a certain certain type of audience that they can see through nonsense very quickly they're going to be able to pick up on whether something's true or genuine and they're all going through genuine moments in their life too so they need someone to kind of help with that coaching and kind of help with some of that mindset looking through all of that i came across you and knew immediately everything that you do what you have going on fits our message and fits our audience perfect I don't want to shortchange any of that. I want to make sure that we get it exactly how it is. So we're going to talk a little bit about your life, and then we'll hit some good talking points in the meantime. So let's go ahead and start a little bit with that cycling career. When did that first kind of make a pinpoint in your head? And then let's kind of highlight your career up to where you are now and what you're doing right now. Yeah, sure. So I think um, the foundation for me getting into competitive cycling started um, in the town where I grew up. This is in... Um, rural Wisconsin, this little town called Barneveld. So it was like a farming town. And really the, the only thing to do there was play sports <laughs> and farm. And so uh, I tried uh, bailing hay one weekend and it was, it was way too hard for me. I wasn't a farming kid, um, but uh, sports was the big thing in this town. And that's what I did. I did basically all the, the standard sports. I started with little league. I did wrestling, um, found that I was really good at running. Um, and all of those I enjoyed, but not really one of them really super excited me until I randomly walked into a movie theater in Madison, Wisconsin, um, and there was this movie called Breaking Away. It's an old movie from the 80s, and it's about bike racing, and it's about a small town kid who discovers bike racing. And for me, like I walked into the theater, had no idea what the movie was about, walked out transformed. Like I didn't know you could race bicycles like wow that's kind of cool so uh i just got bit by that I, I identified with the hero in the movie and from there i was just on fire like i really i just loved it so all throughout my teenage years i got really into cycling focused on that i was traveling all around the country i went to the olympic training center i was you know winning races and trying to um i, I made this big decision senior year in high school that i wasn't going to go to college 
And that was a tough decision because a lot of my peers were like, what do you mean? Like, that's, that's stupid. Like you should be practical, right? You should be, you should play it safe. Like you should be smart. Like there's all these societal norms that um, I took that bold step and I said, no, I'm going to, I'm going to give it a try. Like I would really regret not trying this, this venture. And so moved out of the house uh, age 18 and just went out on my own, got a job waiting tables and trained during the day, waited tables and just grinded away at that was fortunately had all that experience as a teenager. So as I was coming up in the amateur ranks, I had a lot of skills and base and, and connections. So that really helped. Um, and so I did that till I was age 24, 25. And to be honest, I hit, I would say I hit some burnout right around that time. And I didn't really have like a mindset coach is what I do today. I didn't really have that. And I didn't really reach out to anyone. I was very independent. Like I'm going to grind through this and it just kind of ground me out. And mm -hmm. I decided, well, let me get practical and go to college now. Um, and that was kind of the plan from the start is like, I can always go to college, but I can't always bicycle race. There's a limited time. Yeah. You can't utilize that. that youth later on. So you might as well utilize it while you have that opportunity now. Exactly. Exactly. So that's, you know, the, the cycling story really there is that, um, you know, it was something that was just a passion in me. Like I had to do it. It wasn't really a choice. Like, again, that movie breaking away was like, I still watch it today and I, <laughs> I got fired up. Um, so it's one of these things where like, it, it was a dream. And I think, you know, a lot of your viewers and listeners have this dream of something mm -hmm. they want to do, be it a business or whatever. And um, it's just like, like a hunger for that. Like you have to, you have to chase it. So one thing that was pretty common throughout that story, not just with yourself, but also with our, with our audience is that betting on yourself, that, that undenying feeling you have inside that you should be or want to be doing something different than what society says you should be doing right now. So when you first started to identify that mindset, um, how did you find that, that courage to enact on it or start that leap of faith of, you know, what, I am betting on myself and I'm going to do it in reality and start putting practical uh, steps into it. I'll thank my parents. They were very open-minded. Um, they always encouraged me to do what I, what I want. Mm -hmm. So in a way it was kind of like laissez-faire parenting, like hands off, which is, which is really helpful in some ways. Uh, at the same time, like a little more push and discipline probably would have, would have been better. Uh, but they did a great job raising me. And I think, uh, the message there was like, do what you want. We support you. Mm -hmm. And, um, that was really enough permission right there. So, I wasn't um, trained by my parents to, you know, f fear risk taking mm -hmm. uh, anything kind of like my mom was, uh, she still is an artist. My dad was a writer and poetry. So they were a little bit off the beaten path anyway. Mm -hmm. um, so those are kind of the models there that it there wasn't anything like strange about um, doing something new and different. So I think that was really the, the the green light there. And it sounds like one thing too. So to kind of um, mirror with that green light that you were getting, that support you were getting with that also. So internally within yourself, um, you tried many different sports before you found that cycling aspect of it, right? 
I would be willing to say that you wouldn't see your time in those other sports as a complete waste, that you were able to take something away from each one of those that transitioned into the next, that transitioned into the next. So that being said, when we try these opportunities that don't work out, they're not failed opportunities if you take something positive away from it into the next one and continue to try to find what you're looking for. So with that being said, um, as you're going through and you're trying this and you're trying that, what was one thing that you felt was important to keep feeding yourself to not just give up on, oh, well, you know, maybe all sports isn't worth it for me because everyone says sports is it. What was it that was like, there's something here that I just got to keep fleshing out and I'll find. Yeah, I think I just like the competitive nature of it. And it was, it was just fun. Uh, the camaraderie too, being like uh, traveling on a little league baseball team and like going to A&W root beer stands and like, mm-hmm. <laughs> in like the late 1970s, like, I mean, that's Americana. It was, it was just so much fun. So I think I, I knew I enjoyed that camaraderie um, of just doing something interesting and exciting and fun with a, with a group of like-minded people. I, I just loved that. And it was, there, there's some kids in my, my school that didn't do sports at all. And, you know, it's like, well, that just seems kind of boring. Like, let me do mm-hmm. something exciting. So the, the little league baseball, uh, that's where I learned about camaraderie and peer groups. And, and then I also did uh, wrestling as well which was, boy, that's a tough sport. I mean, mm-hmm. like, that's really tough. And I remember um, this one instance where I had to wrestle this kid and he was way better than me. And I got this great pep talk from my dad. And this is like, if I hadn't done wrestling, I wouldn't have gone on to be really competitive in cycling. Mm-hmm. But my dad said um, before the, the match, he's like, you're probably not going to win. Like, and you're thinking like, wait, what a great pep talk, right? <laughs> but he, he was very real. He's like, you're probably not going to win, but I want you to give this kid the fight of his life. Mm-hmm. And he kind of like leaned in. I was like, the fight of his life. Well, that sounds interesting. So um, in that match, I, I almost pinned him in the first 10 seconds. <laughs> I charged across the mat. And he's like, wait, you're not supposed to be this good. And he had like a surprise on his face. And um, the match went on and on and on. And I was just like, I would not be pinned. Mm-hmm. Um, but finally, he was skillful enough and it went on long enough that he tired me out and pinned me. Um, and then uh, we got a standing ovation. You know, if all the parents are clapping and he came over and shook my hand. And he said, hey, you know, great match. And that was one of those moments where, you know, if, if I would have thought, you know, wrestling is too hard, I can't do it just the lesson in pushing myself that hard and having the audacity to take on like the best kid Mm -hmm. just instilled really this life lesson in me that it's so much more interesting to, to try for something audacious like that than to not try at all. So exactly. I mean, you have a 100% chance of not making it if you don't try. And so much of a resonating lesson that you have right there that again, I feel like just speaks volumes and just we can, you know, resonate with our audience tremendously is that you have to be mindful. You have to put yourself there and mentally be cerebral in your situation. So in that moment right there, you know, it, it would have been very easy to just been, you know, a little disheveled or a little disheartened or, okay, you know, I'm not going to win. So why try, but what you got out of that was this, not only this competitive nature, but this 
this faith that you have in yourself that you wouldn't have had if it wasn't for that experience of pushing yourself to try it. And so how many times do we have an opportunity that we feel like we could take, but we talk ourselves out of it because we feel like we're not up to level. We feel like we're a flea that should be able to jump six feet, but instead we're stuck in this jar that can only go, you know, what, six inches or whatever. So we believe we can only jump six inches, but you learned in that moment right there by just trying a hundred percent how far you could go. And then, like you said, right there from that, even though, you know, you didn't become a world renowned wrestler, you still got a championship mindset from this sport. That's how do you relate it to cycling? So being able to be mindful, being able to be, you know, a hundred percent present of where you are and try to find that takeaway, you're going to find some benefit and you're going to figure out how far you can go and how, you know, just important your own secret sauce is. Yeah, definitely. It makes me think of like, asking yourself what's the worst that could happen if i try something and what's the best that could happen mm -hmm. both of those together and what i realized from that wrestling match was the worst that could happen was that people appreciated my effort you mm -hmm. know the fear the fear might be like oh i'm gonna you know they think i suck and i'm gonna lose and um but no it was, it was the opposite so it's really interesting some of those those fears that we have the worst thing happening and then the best thing happening is that, I mean, I'm telling the story, obviously I'm excited about it. It's a great memory and I mm -hmm. lost, right? So like, how strange is that? But it's like one of my proudest athletic achievements, even though it was like middle school wrestling, it was like, I'm so proud of myself for, for doing that. And that was in a way more satisfying than some, like some cycling victories I had. Let's go back to the beginning of that cycling career when you saw that movie you had that feeling, that calling of like, all right, there's there's something here. It, it's unexplainable, but I know I just have to do it. It was a, an entire universe I didn't know existed until I had this feeling. What helped you um, start that journey? And I, I know you know it may not have been that big of a transition, but to become a champion, that's a full time commitment. That becomes a lifestyle. So going from not even knowing it existed to it now being a full-blown lifestyle that you're a championship cyclist at. Let's talk a little bit about that start of that journey and how you identified that transition. Yeah, I think, you know, after I saw that movie, I knew I, you know, I wanted to get a bicycle, a good bike. So I did that. Um, I joined a local cycling club in Madison, Wisconsin called the Two Tired Wheelmen, sort of a play on words. <laughs> so T-W-O, Two Tired. Um, and they were great. They at that time in Madison, Wisconsin, there was uh, a lot of really good cyclists. There was also a lot of speed skating there, very athletic area. And I had some some great mentors at the time who really helped me along and really encouraged me. And we do these group rides. And so I was like the young kid. They took me under their wing. So it was really this nurturing environment that um, that encouraged me to 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 go along and. and keep taking those next steps. So like that was a green light there. Like, oh, the cycling community is really cool. Great. Um, after I was in that community and kind of being nurtured, I started taking some more risks. Like there was this big race out in Colorado that I wanted to do, but I didn't think I was quite good enough. It was called the Junior National Tour. Um, I went out to, to Colorado with a buddy of mine. I had like I don't know, maybe 200 bucks in my pocket, completely naive, no plan at 16, right? No cell phones, nothing like that. And it was just really fun, 
liberating feeling. And I went out and halfway through this race series in the mountains of Colorado, I ran out of money, mm. literally ran out of money. I had no money for food or a hotel. Right. And I had to like race my bike. And so, um, I remember like basically crashing in this one kid's hotel room and like no breakfast. And the next day's race, uh, there's these things called preems, which they have in um, a circuit race or criteriums and bicycle racing. They're uh, sort of mini um, prizes within the race. So like lap 10, hundred bucks, lap 20, hundred bucks. And so I won a couple of those because I had to. Mm -hmm. So that was an interesting experiment. Yeah. Uh, when it comes to um, eating or not, it's crazy how much hunger can be a real yeah. uh, motivating force. Right. Like literal hunger. Yeah. I think I, for some reason, you know, I had like a, a frozen cheesecake that morning because I don't remember the circumstances. But anyway, point being like, as I was uh, exploring cycling, there were these sort of like watermarks of like, oh, I can I can go this high and I survived. Right. Like that, that's a big fear. A 16 year old kid running out of money in the middle of Colorado, you know, no cell phones. Um, and I figured it out. Right. And then, um, you know, a couple more experiences like that uh, where I, I tested myself. And again, I had that audacity again, like going back to this wrestling match, of like, let me face the Goliath and, mm -hmm. and, and just do it. And what's the worst that could happen? It's just sports. You know, I'm not in a war or something like that. Um, and so, um, there one other story here, it was like a seminal moment where there was this uh, big bike race in Wisconsin. Um, and there was this one kid, I'll say his name, his name is Gordy Holterman. Kind of a cool name. <laughs> and, uh, Gordy? Yeah. So actually it's, it's funny. I wrote a blog post on this and he, we reconnected briefly, but he, uh, he was so good that basically when he showed up, and this is like 16, 17 year old kids, he would win everything. He'd just show up in the start line, like it's over, right? And uh, I had the good fortune of staying with a host family who was friends with Gordy. So I hung out with him kind of like out of my league, like who am I to be hanging out with this you know, national champ? And he was just like this down to earth guy, this really cool guy. And just being in proximity to somebody who was a lot better than me, right? Mm -hmm. Gave me that psychological kind of, again, green light of like, well, I can hang out with this guy. I can joke around with him. What if I raced as good as him? Maybe I could try that. And so there's this one particular race in this race series where uh, I tried my I tried my own attack. The first time I had ever done that. Mm. And I was like, I've watching this guy Gordy make these attacks and win the race. It's like, well, let me just imitate, right? Mm -hmm. Um, and so I, I tried that and that was like, that was a big moment too. That was successful. I didn't win the race, but it was more of like, let me be audacious again and try this thing. So that's kind of like the, the through line here is like being audacious and trying something that's, um, that you're not supposed to do, or that's, uh, you know, out of your league or something like that and test yourself and see, maybe you are in the league. So those are the things that I really learned. I mean, it tests yourself, especially when the worst case scenario is something that will be forgotten. Mm -hmm. You know, we, a lot of times audience, we don't necessarily remember the the failures, but we can tell you all about those successful stories, those successful shots. You know, if you want to go back to sports, we remember who won the Super Bowl every year, but let's go three years back and talk about who was in the Super Bowl. Sometimes it's harder to remember the team that didn't win. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if, um, 
being forgotten about is the worst case scenario. And that's kind of the best case scenario in a certain sense too. So like make that chance, make that opportunity and take that, take that chance. Um, One thing that um, was huge that you mentioned. um, So we've had a couple of other guests before on the past. Um, We've had a competitive weightlifter and in a somewhat similar story, very adamant on um, when he first started his journey before he quite realized he was there with uh, all the other competitors was finding that mentorship, finding that that like-minded group, that skill level is above yours, that you can go in, bring value to them, obviously, but you can go in and learn a lot from them. That's going to shortchange a lot of that learning experience or a lot of that, the growing pains you'll have to go through. You can just get it from them and then immediately turn around. And it sounded like you were able to do that, which was phenomenal. Yeah. It's, it's a lot about, you know, your peer group, you know, the, the old saying, like, you are the five people you hang out with most, right? Mm-hmm. Like, it's, it's, it's really true. Um, and so that'll rub off on you, you know, in both, both ways. You're hanging out with people who are not passionate or negative-minded. Like, no matter how strong you are, if you start hanging out with them, you're going to start behaving the same way. I mean, that's the way that human beings are wired for, mm-hmm. like, small hunter-gatherer groups, and we just mirror each other's behavior. Like, that's it's pretty basic. So you're fighting against nature. If you're, you know, um, think that you're in a going to be in a peer group and not not have that affect you, right? Yeah, especially even if you're at the top of that peer group when it comes yeah. to setting goals or setting things like that. Now you're always going to be the spearhead, but you're only going to be able to grow as far as you yourself can grow. Whereas if you're in that peer group and collectively you're setting goals, you're seeing what can be achieved. So your high mark goal has already been achieved. So you know what's possible. So you know you can go ahead and achieve it. And so that kind of builds some of that audacity like you're talking about to, to make it go. Yeah. One question I have. Um, so uh, this is a very common, um, very common term that I've just recently, uh, recently come uh, to be familiar with, but um, imposter syndrome. Yeah. So a lot of what it sounds like you're talking about having that audacity of making that chance of taking that, that, that jump yeah. feels like the complete opposite of what imposter syndrome is in the sense that you feel like you aren't supposed to be there and you aren't worth it. So in that sense, if um, say someone has found themselves in that peer group, or they're probably holding themselves back from finding that peer group because of that mindset, what's something that you would say that would kind of get them over that hump and maybe have a little more courage in themselves that they do belong where they feel like they should? Uh, I wouldn't necessarily give them any kind of like a pep talk or anything. I'd give them some education on Mm -hmm. some psychology and how that, how, what imposter syndrome actually is. Okay. So what it is, it's, uh, again, we're really wired to be part of a tribe or a peer group and that our biggest fear is being exiled from that peer group because then we're out on the savanna without food, without people to, to, to band together with. So the imposter syndrome is basically here I am leveling up with this new peer group, this new possible potential peer group. Will they accept me? And in doing so, will I be abandoned by my current peer group? that I'm kind of up-leveling away from. So this it's really, I educate people on that, like what's really going on is some of these deep primal fears. Mm-hmm. We're wired that way. So it's very normal for you to be feeling imposter syndrome. It happens to all of us. And here's what the phenomenon actually is. It's just this primal fear and it's irrational, but like, let's look at it. It's not your fault. There's nothing wrong with you. You don't have a confidence problem. This is just the way the human brain works. 
mm-hmm. and they hear that and like, my athletes hear that like well that makes sense interesting and like it's kind of like an epiphany and then you know again we ask them like what's the worst that could happen mm-hmm. like well like i won't be accepted by the the next peer group up like okay if that's i mean that's kind of sucks but like were your your current friends will they abandon you for trying hard like probably not unless they're just jerks right mm-hmm. so like talking that out just rationally can be a way to uh, break through that imposter syndrome. I think the mistake what coaches can do is say, you can do it, you know, you're just as good as them. Like, you know, push it, come on, you're worth it. It's like, yeah, but that's kind of fluff. It's more like you got to get to the root fear of what's driving the imposter syndrome. So yeah, exactly. I was going to say that that quote unquote coach pep talk, all that really is doing is just applying that bandaid. It's a very sugary substance instead of the actual meat in in what you need or, you know, vegetarian, you can still get your everything you need without the meat. But right. um, Yeah. So I'm a huge proponent. I say this all the time. You know, you feel how you feel for a reason. That's not unjustifiable. One, what you do from it is, and then two, where that fear or where that emotion is coming from, that's what needs to be identified and addressed. And so just like that, what you're talking about with imposter syndrome, feeling it is validated. You're going to feel it. It's a natural occurrence, but it's not an unnatural thing. So it's not uncommon. So it's not unsolvable. It's just you have to identify where it's coming from and apply your energy to there instead of chasing the tail of trying to just pep yourself up constantly, which is probably going to lead to a burnout because you're going in circles and not getting to where you need to be. You were talking about you're experiencing burnout right there around what was the the early 20s um, after you've been doing this, you've... Uh, yeah. You've been hungry. You probably started feeding yourself a little bit. This racing thing is starting to give back a little bit more. So, you know, you're starting to realize that you can rely on this. You're getting emotional feedback from it too. So it's starting to become a positive in your life. It's transitioned into a lifestyle. So now at this point, now that it is a lifestyle and it's, it's your everyday, when did you start to, uh, to identify that you were starting to get burnout? Do you think it happened before you identified it? And then what was some actions you made from that? So it was probably like age 24 when I really started hitting the, hitting the burnout and I wasn't as aware and didn't have the psychological training to really see some of the tells or the signs. Mm-hmm. So, you know, athletes can be in denial about a lot of stuff and I was kind of pushing through, but I had my biggest victory ever. I'd won the, the Northern California championships, which at the time was one of the toughest uh, districts in the country. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember even at, finishing the race everyone's congratulating me and this was like another up level mm-hmm. and it was interesting the first thing that crossed my mind was i'm tired this is too hard i want to quit right here this is the level i want to quit at mm-hmm. it was the weirdest thing like it was like a relief like i'd finally gotten like a really big resolve and i was like I'm, i want to i'm out and but what i realized now and in, in hindsight is that Leading up to that, I didn't have a coach. Mm-hmm. I thought I could do it all myself. Um, I uh, I was comparing myself to some other folks who, at that time, decided to quit cycling and go to college, and they were they were better than me. Mm-hmm. So it was a little bit of that 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 doubt again. My peer group, and so um, and I was in a, a relationship. Uh, my I broke up with this girlfriend. She was great. I was like, well, I got to be serious about cycling. So it was like a culmination of a lot of things, like some some heartbreak, some kind of like just grinding without any real good mentorship 
Mm-hmm. And then, um, and that was it. I remember winning this, this race and then the rest of that season, just kind of going through the motions of like, well, I should, uh, you know, I should do this. Um, so yeah, in, in hindsight, it was more of like, I, I needed the coach and I really didn't have that coach. Mm-hmm. Someone who could address some of the doubts and fears. Like if I would have told this coach, Hey, I want to quit now. Like this is too hard. The coach would have known what to say if, if he was a good coach. He would have said, take a week off, take a vacation, right? Mm-hmm. Um, get some perspective. Don't make, never make a decision in an extreme emotional state. Exactly. Whether that's you're exalted, feeling like you're on top of the world, or if you're feeling really, really down, do not make life-changing decisions. You want to make life-changing decisions at a baseline emotional state, sleep on it, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, in in retrospect, the the, the burnout signs were there. Um, I was definitely training too hard uh, and didn't really have the science of training. So just a lot of kind of like uh, strategic logistical mistakes uh, that I was going through and, and thinking that I was that I didn't need a coach. That I think was the biggest mistake I made. And it sounds like too, with a lot of that, you fall into this pattern and, and it's very easy to do, especially if you're a very passionate person with high standards and with uh, high admirations, it's very easy to, to fall into grinding for the sake of grinding. You believe you're supposed to work hard. So you constantly find a way of working hard. And sometimes you can feel that that grind with things that are a little bit unnecessary, maybe a little bit inefficient to where if you can logistically figure out where to apply yourself and how to make that go around, a coach in that sense could have very easily helped you emotionally put those things in line to where you're not spending a bunch of energy in all of these places that essentially um, are just tiring you out, essentially are just pulling you away from that that thing you want to keep doing. And so, yeah, coaches are a good coach is, is, is amazing. A bad coach, not good, but good coaches uh, can be helpful. Um, and I'll, I'll tell you right now. So um, I'm working on a book right now. It's, it's called uh, a working title is called make the break. Okay. Yeah. And it's, um, it's a number of uh, sort of accidental coaches and mentors that just showed up in my life. And I didn't, they didn't sign up or anything like that, but they said certain things to me. So this is what I'm working on. And just the importance of having a mentor that says something to you that gives you some guidance and and reassurance. So Perfect. And so it sounds like, you know, going through the experience that you had right there and then identifying what you wish you had and what you felt like you needed, it feels like in this next phase of your career, you're starting to give that back and you're starting to put back those breadcrumbs that you wish you had that could have led you to, um, you know, where you wanted to go with much less energy and probably without so much devastation that that burnout can cause in, in that time. So let's talk a little bit about that, what you're doing now, um, a little bit of how you made that transition from cycling to maybe coaching is where I want to go. You went back to college. So let's talk a little bit about that process and how you found uh, your passion now. So I went back to college just being very practical, like I'm going to get a, a, a decent paying job that's not too hard. Um, and uh, let me let me flash back real quick. Uh, I one of the reasons I got into coaching was uh, I had a therapist when I was about 15 years old. My parents were getting divorced. It's pretty rough, rough time, and mm-hmm. so they sent me to therapy to you know fix me. Right? <laughs> and fortunately, I yeah right exactly yeah. 
in, in quotes. Um, but as fate would have it, I got paired up with this great therapist, this mm-hmm. guy named Gary. And he was like down to earth, uh, just, just a really great guy. And he helped me with my my cycling at that time. In fact, I thank him for really um, helping. And what I'm getting at here with this like kind of practical thing, I call it playing it safe. I was getting some good results in cycling and like pretty decent, like fifth, sixth, seventh, like that. Mm-hmm. And I was kind of bragging to him. And we had this one particular therapy session and he just sort of mockingly clapped <laughs> at me with like this stone face after I told him about like ninth place in this race. Mm-hmm. I was like, what the hell? Right. And he said, well, why didn't you win? And you wouldn't think a therapist would be like, <laughs> they'd, they'd be more sensitive, like, oh, it's okay. Try yeah. harder. But he was old school. He was just like um, very provocative. And he leaned into me. He said, you're playing it safe. I was like, what? You know, imagine you're 15 and you're, you're hearing this. And he, he was right. It's like this, this fear of up-leveling. Mm-hmm. So I really wanted to thank him, Gary, for, <laughs> for setting me straight. But he didn't really cure me of that. He helped me in my cycling career. But then a flash forward to exit cycling into college, I played it safe. Mm-hmm. I chose something practical. I said, I'm going to be a school teacher. I knew a lot of school teachers that I really admired and respected. Seems like a cool job. And um, so I became a high school Spanish teacher. Nice. And I, you know, I love languages. I was definitely interested in the topic, right? Mm-hmm. But the, the choice was more of like, let me be practical. Mm-hmm. And also didn't really know what I wanted to do. But um I became a high school Spanish teacher. And what I noticed when I was teaching, uh, incredibly hard job, by the way, anyone who's a teacher, massive respect. They're totally underpaid. Uh, a good teacher is like, I mean, I'm sure you probably know some teachers in your life where like they said some things you really help you, right? Yeah. How many of us of, of our own foundational building blocks came from that one teacher or that right. one experience or something yeah. like that? So I remember in my when I was teaching, um, I'd be... I was interested in these kids who were underperforming, but I recognized they were like, had the talent and ability to get A's. Mm-hmm. Like they were smart kids. And so I would meet with a couple of them like after class and kind of, hey, what's going on? At a couple of parent-teacher conferences and then I'd watch their grade, grades go up, right? And that mm-hmm. really fascinated me that just working one-on-one. So then I um, got a master's degree in counseling. So I wanted to be a high school counselor. Okay. Did that and at and that same degree was a combination with uh, having your own uh, therapy license so you could do your own private practice so i worked in high schools as a, as a high school counselor and started my own uh, therapy practice so um i did that and at the same time i noticed that i was working with a lot of athletes that were getting attracted to me so what i what i realized is that i, I like that one-on-one kind of mentorship so mm-hmm. in counseling in high school, you do that. You ask the kids all the right questions. You figure out maybe they have imposter syndrome or whatever's going on. It's like this puzzle. And mm-hmm. you figure out what the puzzle is. You say the right things. They do the right things. And they, they have success. Um, and so I started, um, I quit the, the, the high school counseling job, went full-time into private therapy practice, uh, and started working with a lot of athletes. Then I realized that, okay, I want to do just more of a coaching, not necessarily a psychotherapy. So right now, my business model is half of my clients are through my psychotherapy practice. 
half of them are athletes wanting to achieve better results. Nice. There, there are similar types of interactions and kind of like coaching and mentorship, but, but different enough that they're, that they're separate. So that's the journey basically to, to where I am today. And so a lot of that sounds somewhat similar to that journey that you had trying to figure out that sport, trying to go through of that. This is where I am right now. I'm going to be a hundred percent at it. I'm going to throw the audacity that I can be the best at it. Maybe, you know, it may have fell short for whatever reason, but you still took whatever positivity you wanted from it. You still took whatever you lessened. So it became a major positive. It became bigger than what you thought it could be. And it just leads on to the next and leads on to the next. So with um, your your uh, practice now, you said there is some commonality between the two. What's the most common mindset that you uh, you find that you encounter um, between the two that that requires a little bit of work? A great question. Uh, let, let me first just tell you like the difference, just to kind of set the stage. Okay. Uh, so sometimes I'll have people kind of on the border between if they would require psychotherapy, benefit more from that, or the coaching. Sometimes like some will come in the funnel that way. And I, I, I frame it this way, like psychotherapy is repair work, okay. generally speaking, and the coaching is building. Okay. So that if there's something going on where you're not ready for coaching yet, that if we do coaching together, it's going to really, you're not going to be getting your money's worth. Mm -hmm. Let's do the repair work first, right? So there could be some, some trauma, there could be something going on there, getting everything ready. Um, so that's kind of the basic difference between say psychotherapy and coaching is repair versus coaching being more building. Uh, so the, the common thing that I see maybe between them would be, um, this gets back to peer groups, honestly, it gets back to mm -hmm. relationships. I think that this isn't talked about enough, but, um, if you're in a, I hate using the word toxic, but just <laughs> like, we'll call it a dysfunctional relationship of any sort. There we go. That might be holding you back. And especially if it's with a family member or your, even your spouse or like some good friends, it's hard sometimes to admit that there's some folks in your life who might be detrimental to you. Nothing wrong. Bless them. Right. But like maybe that's not you should spend less time with them mm -hmm. or maybe assert yourself more or something like that. I see that as a as a really common thread in in, in the performance end and in the repair end um, of just the people who are you around and what uh, what arguments are you having or what are the points of contention mm -hmm. because you might be married to someone who it's not that they don't want you to be successful and grind and be an entrepreneur but maybe they don't quite get it and you haven't explained how important it is. Or maybe you haven't talked about the reciprocity of the relationship. I'm going to grind for five years and let's have a discussion and please give me full green lights. You know, like, mm -hmm. I think those are the things that I see between the coaching and the psychotherapy is uh, who are you around? Who's your peer group? What are your relationships like? And how do you interact with these people? Because like you were saying, even if they aren't actively saying things to bring you down, a lack of support can still stymie a certain level of growth. And like you said, if they don't get it, then there's not going to be that natural level of support to it. And even if that's not necessarily in a romantic relationship, even in a friendship standpoint, you know, you don't have to just straight be a dick and just cut people out of your life because they no longer fit your mold. Perfectly fine if you need to, 100% acceptable if you do. But at the same time, 
you know, it's one of those things that you have to constantly evaluate these relationships, what that give and take is and understand, you know, our internal vernacular, um, I'm going to paraphrase something that I read before, but it's around what a thousand words per minute. Mm -hmm. We are so much products of repetition. So if your internal vernacular is a thousand words per minute, how many of those words are positive? How many of those words are reinforcing? And if you're around someone who's constantly filling your vernacular, your internal monologue with words that aren't supportive, with words that are very bland, very gray, or very destructive, then you're limiting yourself right there from the very beginning. How would someone um, say they realize they're in this grind and maybe realize that right now they don't want to do it for themselves? Hearing that right there, the difference between the coaching aspect and the, the psychotherapy aspect of it, how would someone identify which direction they would need to go into? Well, it depends, you know, it depends what they're, if, if they're coming to me, say like, um, let's say for, for coaching mm-hmm. um, and they, well, let's, let's just call them not an athlete. Let's call them an entrepreneur because there's so many similarities and very, very similar. So let's take it into more of your uh, viewership and listenership here is uh, an entrepreneur comes to me. And by the way, in my therapy practice, I work with a number of entrepreneurs. It's interesting. This is a similar thing. So, oh, let's, in fact, let's actually take it there. I'll, I'll uh, sort of create a, a, a conglomerate client that I see in psychotherapy who has his own business, mm-hmm. who has a demonstrated success, but is again, hitting that, that next level, that next stair step. And mm-hmm. there's, there's some, some wobble, wobbliness there. And they're, they're coming to me and they're saying, you know what? Um, I just, I'm, I'm really, really stressed out. Um, I'm feeling all this anxiety. Um, I having trouble sleeping. So there's these symptoms, but we're not getting at the root of what's causing them. So mm-hmm. I'd ask a lot of questions again, ask, um, are there, any, is there anyone in your life that's causing you some stress? Like that's one of the first questions. Like, yeah, there's this one employee, it just driving me nuts. You know, they, they don't show up. And, and so why anyone else? Well, you know, my wife and I have been arguing a bit, right? And then I'll look for themes of how this client interacts and interfaces in relationships. And it could mm-hmm. be something where they're too nice to people, mm-hmm. right? Where they kind of enable bad behavior. They constantly give their power away in that sense. Right. And, but what's funny is that it is kind of this dance that they take part in unconsciously. So mm-hmm. the term, um, the classic example is like an, an alcoholic where the, the is married to a, an angel of a woman who to compensates for him and cleans up things. And, and that's what we call enabling. So mm-hmm. it could be this entrepreneur has some enabling behaviors in, in his relationship and to identify that. So that's one of the first questions I ask is, is anyone stressing you out? And, and if so, let's, let's name these people. And I mean, that right there is immediately identifying that, that environment yeah. around them. So you're getting a, an idea of what yeah. inspiration and influence is happening outside of their own head first. Yeah. I, I think the mistake could be that it's all internal. It's all you, you know, just, just have the right mindset. And, and certainly that's important, mm-hmm. but I, Honestly, the more and more I do this work, the more I'm realizing that that, that peer group and the people you're around is, is a makes a huge, huge difference. Mm-hmm. Environment is so so important, um, and you can, by the way, you can create that yourself. Mm-hmm. If you're in like you know some small town, you don't have a lot of entrepreneurs around you. 
get a get a group of people join you know join a group or something like that i mean you and me are having this conversation on zoom right now so i mean exactly exactly it's 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 there and if anything it's more achievable now than ever yes the one that you obviously have to be afraid of or people or be mindful of are people who would be looking to take advantage of certain situations like that um whether it be these fake money gurus because you're desperate in a situation of trying to, to make it to that next level. So someone's going to promise you that answer to making more money or, or whatever. Mm-hmm. Obviously, you know, you have to do your own due diligence in that. But yeah, it's so important who you surround yourself with and what environment you create for yourself. I know our audience probably thrilled at this point. I know they probably have a lot of questions that they want to. So if they want to see more of your content, if they want to get in contact with you and maybe reach out, what are some platforms that you have? What are the, uh, the way for our audience to uh, connect? Yeah, I mean, I'm pretty much everywhere. So you just uh, just Google my name. So Michael, uh, normal spelling. And then C. Lee, my last name is C, two E's, L, Y. And I have, uh, I have a podcast, a um, couple of websites. You'll, you'll find me. I'm on Instagram a lot too. Uh, that's, that's a good place to find me, Michael underscore Sealy on Instagram. Well, you guys find them there. Michael, I certainly appreciate it. James, it's been, it's been a great conversation. I think we, we talked about a, a lot of really interesting things today. And um, I, I think your podcast is, is, is great. It's you know positive vibes. I've listened to some episodes and I think it's really helping people. So happy to be here and contribute. Yeah, absolutely. Until next time, you guys.